Welcome to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. A series called Nina Mae McKinney, Hollywood's First Black Movie Star, a celebration of the little-known career of the actress-singer who has once dubbed the Black Garbo, opens today at Film Forum with select screenings, including the world premiere of a new 35mm restoration of King Vidor's landmark 1929 film, Hallelujah, Hollywood's first sound feature with an all-black cast. Joining us now to discuss the complicated life and career of Nina Mae McKinney are visual artist, filmmaker, film comment, contributor, and programmer Ina Archer, and film historian Donald Bogle, who discussed McKinney in his 1992 book, Tom's, Coons, Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks, An Interpretive History of Blacks in American Films. Welcome to our show, both of you. Hi, Lenny. Hi, Donald. Good to talk to you again. It's and, good to talk to you again. It's it's different this time, but it's it, it's great to talk to you again. Well, the only and problem... Hello, Ina. Hello, Donald. Hello. <laughs> the only problem we're going to have is that we have two people on the phone, so we'll try to <laughs> we'll try to keep it uh, as uh, clean as possible, one and then the other. Okay, but Donald, you discussed her in that book, uh, in which you recognized her for inspiring other actresses and uh, and passing on her techniques to them. And you wrote that her final contribution to the movies now lay in those she influenced. That's because. She's hardly remembered these days? Uh, yes, she's not well remembered. And, and actually, you know, her Hollywood career was cut short. So it, it wasn't as if there, um, people were repeatedly seeing her and that um, th- there would be stronger memories of her. It, it, it just didn't happen. She did keep working, though, surprisingly, um, even though she didn't get the the really big star roles that uh, that she should have gotten. But Nina May, and it, and actually, Lenny, it, she it's pronounced Nina. it Nina May. Yeah, I was wondering. Um, yes. Um, but I'm but, going to call Ina Ina, not Ina or Ina. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but she... Um, you know, she she came on the scene in, in 1929 in Hallelujah, King Vidor's um, really um, historic film. And um, she made a great impression. And I've always felt that she she did influence others. I mean, people within uh, black show business circles, um, they, they were aware of her. Um and and some of the troubles that she had, and I'm convinced that someone like Dorothy Dandridge was aware of her. Um, and Nina May influences when when you see Hallelujah, um, you can see the the kind of influence that she had on on other African American leading ladies when they got a chance to really do an important uh, role in Hollywood motion pictures. And I also mentioned she may have um, influenced Jean Harlow as well, this sort of brassy quality that Harlow had and um, and that Nina May projected so much in Hallelujah in 29. She also, I think, um, it, that, that Hallelujah has um, an influence on the 1954 film Carmen Jones, which is also historic. And, and the the sort of storylines in both those films are similar. They're triangle films where a woman has to decide between two men um, or two men are vying for her. Um, we see it in Hallelujah and we see it 
later in Carmen Jones with Dorothy Dandridge, Belafonte, and and Joe Adams. Let's bring but Ina I, into this because uh, uh, Ina, um, I was wondering about the history. Wasn't uh, Nina May still a teenager, sixteen years old, right when she was chosen to star in Hallelujah's Chick, a, a singer and dancer in a sexy flapper dress? Was uh, um, was I, she playing a teenager at the time? Um, I think that she was, if she was a teenager, she was uh, definitely the kind of sophisticated, um, uh, flaming youth of that period rather than the 16-year-olds that we think of of sweet 16s. So um, her actual age, I am not sure of it at the time. Um, my interest in, in uh, Nina Mae McKinney um, was really struck by her performance, you know, seeing her in this film that I had heard about historically being this very important early sound film, but the dynamism of her presence and her modernity is what was so striking when I saw the film. And it was just, it was so, whatever her age, um, she spoke to two different ages. She was very much representative of a certain kind of 1930s, uh, late 20s um, verve and sassiness and freedom um, that resonates so clearly today in other kinds of performers and is so parallel to other performers from that time, like Lillian Roth, I'm thinking of as well. Well, but dis and, despite uh, her... Despite her age, she was already dancing and singing in Harlem speakeasies and was in the chorus of Blackbirds of 1928, uh, which starred Bill actually, Bojangles she, Robinson and Adelaide Hall. So she uh, she already was a, a, a kind of experience, even though she was 16 going on 17 when she started making the film. But she wasn't originally cast as Chick. She had to do things no, even to, to attract King Vidor's notice. Now, initially, King Vidor wanted Ethel Waters Ooh. for the part of, of, of Chick. And he wanted um, Paul Robeson for the part of Zeke. And he wasn't able to get them. And Ethel Waters never forgot that because she felt that people in show business circles in New York, when Vidor's people were trying to find her and um, and that they didn't direct him on how to reach her. But that's who he originally wanted. And at one point, another performer named Honey Brown mm -hmm. was signed to do um, Hallelujah, and then she couldn't do it. She and Nina Mae was indeed a teenager. And as you've said, she was in Blackbirds of 1928. Uh, and she, um, in the film, she doesn't strike me as a teenager. I don't think. Uh, I, know, well, I think she was born I know, in 1912. She was born in 1912. The film was yes. was shot in 1928, going into 1929. Yes. So she was, so. Yeah, she she was 16, hmm. and she. Uh, but she, as Ina has said, she 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 doesn't seem like sweet 16 hmm. at all. She seems to be an experienced young woman in the. Um, in the film. She reminds me a bit really of Clara Bow with that kind of um, energy that, that, that she has. And, um, and she was and, compared and to I Clara Bow. I beg your pardon. She was compared to Clara Bow. Yeah. And also the, um, the sexuality that she, that mm -hmm. she had. Um, but she, um, she, she projects a, a kind of, 
um, independent woman in this film, even though the, the, the King Vidor is not really stressing that, but it's in there. She makes up her mind as to what she wants to do. And, um, and sometimes she makes the wrong choices, but she's making choices. Now, let, let's go back a, a bit, Donald. Uh, her name was really Nanny Mamie McKinney. Yes. And she was yes. born on June 12, 1912, in Lancaster, South Carolina. Her parents' marriage was very troubled. Her father was even sentenced to a chain gang. And then how did she come to New York as a teenager uh, and, and, uh, and, and one who already had been working as a domestic when she started um, working in show business? Well, she, you know, she, her parents left South Carolina and they came to New York and, and Nina Mae was left with an aunt who really was the person who, who, who reared her. And then Nina Mae comes to New York and she, um, she was about 12 or 13 from what, from what I understand. And she came to, to New York and she just got into this New York groove. She sort of taught herself to dance and she decided she wanted a show business career and she began to pursue it. And, you know, when she's in Blackbirds of 1928, the Blackbird show put on by Lou Leslie, there were a series of them that turned up on, on Broadway and they were very, uh, popular and and as you've mentioned, they had a, a lot of different um, black talents in them. And I think in Blackbirds of, of 1928, Bill Bojangles Robinson mm. was was in the yeah. show. So, but she, she was in the early, chorus. I beg your pardon. She was just in the chorus. She didn't have yes, any. yes. But she stood out because King Vidor told me. I interviewed King Vidor, and he told me he he had never forgotten where she was in that chorus. He said to me, she was the third girl from the right. And he was just so taken with her and with that energy. And then when Honey Brown ended up, she wasn't, she had been cast and then she wasn't going to be able to do it. And then Vidor remembered Nina May and, um, and, 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 and she was signed for Hallelujah. And he and said... I have to say, he said Nina May, Nina May McKinney was beautiful and talented and glowing with personality, um, just a joy to work with. Someone like her inspires a director. And then he wrote in a memoir, it took no great effort to bring it out. She just had it. Whatever you wanted, whatever you visualized, she could do it. Yes, precisely. And um, she, you know, I'll, I'll tell you something else. I, when I talk to King Vidor that, that I asked, when we talk about her influence on, on others, um, you know, in, in the history of American movies pertaining to African-American women, uh, for a long time, those few who had a chance at playing these leading uh, glamorous roles, uh, they had to be close to that white ideal. They, you know, lighter skinned, straighter hair, keener features. And you can see that as it happens later with um, uh, Lena Horne in the uh, 1940s and, of course, Dandridge in the 1950s. But I asked King Vidor um, because he had wanted Ethel Waters, who was not light skinned. And I said to uh, Vidor, do you think by using Nina May that this sort of because in the film there there is a contrast between the lighter Nina May and the browner Victoria Spivy, 
who plays the good girl yeah. in Hallelujah. And I said, do you think that this influenced others from then on that it was going to be lighter black women who were going to be able, the few parts that were out there. And um, he, King Vidor, I mean, who I liked quite a bit, he didn't seem to quite understand the whole color thing and a color cast system or colorism that worked its way through through Hollywood for uh, for decades. Had Ethel Waters played the part, um, film history might have gone in a, in a different direction. Do you think, Ina? Uh, I definitely think so. And for me, I mean, you know, uh, I guess in my work, I sort of think about speculative uh, black Hollywood history, um, you know, the kind of sci-fi version. But I think that that kind of established that, that sense. But I also feel that maybe McKinney didn't go forward because, this, you know, along with her, her light skin look, her, along with that came this really, I think, real black girl personality. Hmm. Yeah, and I think in a way that that it might have been what was that was attractive and yet wasn't articulated to someone like, uh, you know, and it's certainly a, 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 a more current way of expressing that, but that maybe um, a director like King Vidor wouldn't have really sensed. But in, in notions of how to, how she kind of predicted certain kinds of racial um, uh, norms in Hollywood, at the same time, I feel like that didn't, uh, that she wasn't, she wouldn't been as good a bridge to a kind of white world as some of the other performers that you were speaking of, like Lena Horne and Dorothy Dandridge, even though they, you know, that um, I feel like there's something in her, in Nina Mae McKinney's um, performances that are, um, in undeniably African-American, <laughs> I'll put it that way. Yeah, I think, yes. But the same thing is true of Dandridge and mm -hmm. Carmen Jones. Well, it, I, it have really to, I have to interrupt for just a second to tell our audience that they're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. And we're talking about Nina Mae McKinney, Hollywood's first black movie star, the subject of a series that opens today at the Film Forum. And with us are, are Donald Bogle, who actually will be introducing the films tonight, and Ina Archer, who will be introducing the films later. Uh, so, but, okay, you, uh, I'm sorry, Donald, go back to what you were saying. Well, what, I mean, I think that Dandridge had that, but the point Ina is making is, is true. I mean, I. Uh, uh, but color is so important have, here. You're saying. Beg your pardon. You're saying the 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 darkness of the skin was a really relevant aspect to this whole story. Well, Ina is also bringing in something else about Nina May's particular persona. Um, but the the thing is with when we look at the history that King Vidor told me when they. Uh, you know, screened Hallelujah. And it was an MGM picture. And, um, and MGM had not wanted to make the picture. They did not think that there was a, um, that one that in the South, 
you know, they didn't see it, it having chances of being shown. And um, they just didn't think there was an audience for it. So, but King Vidor put up his salary to, to, to see that Hallelujah was made. But nonetheless, after the film was, uh, was completed and, um, and they had screenings, King Vidor told me that the executives, the white executives at, at MGM, that they all felt she had star quality. Yeah, and they signed into a five-year contract. Yes, which it, made it her the first just... African American major Hollywood film star. And after the film was released in 1929, the New York Daily News wrote that she was an honest to goodness screen star, the first colored girl to attain that distinction. And she became famous to the point where, if uh, she her name appeared in African American newspapers, all they had to do was say uh, Nina May, and everyone knew who yeah. they were talking about. Yeah. But he said that, you know, that the executives, they all felt she had it, but nothing happened for her. I mean, she appears in Safe in Hell in 1931 and uh, she does some some other films uh, in Hollywood, but there was no big follow up role. And the the thing is that that I think part of the problem, I mean, what Ina is saying is, is significant her her particular persona that they they couldn't see films where that was going to be would would be on on showcase mm-hmm. but at the same time they still had these attitudes that african americans were not going to bring people into the box office and this is this is what happened to uh to her later it happens with someone like freddie washington who is in the 1934 version of imitation of life she plays the light-skinned young black woman who um passes for white and freddie washington there was excitement about and then of course later with dorothy dandridge even in the 50s while poitier is on on the rise sydney poitier is on the rise in in films um Dandridge, this black woman, is left floundering. So they didn't have a certain conception in mind. The other thing is that they did not think at that time ways where you might reach the black audience, that there was a black audience out there and, and race movies were, were, were being made. She and made I'm one. Convinced, I'm convinced that race movies were the black movies, uh, black cast movies made for black audiences. And Oscar Michel was working in, in the 1920s. And, um, and those movies, there were problems with distribution and financing, all of that. But there was a black audience that was excited by them. But the major studios didn't quite see that, that you can make these movies and you can pitch them towards this audience at their reach that particular uh, audience. I tell you, ironically, it's funny because even in, in recent years, there's a certain kind of audience that Hollywood didn't think was there. And Tyler Perry, who's quite controversial, um, <laughs> realized is there. Even if people don't particularly like his movies, um, that, that you can't, there is an audience out there and you just have to um, make films that that and and then promote them in such a way that you're going to bring that audience um, 
into the theater. So this is part of the thing that happened with um, with with Nina May. So you're saying Hollywood was scared to take a chance on an attractive black woman to make her into a glamorous sex symbol, as they might have with an attractive white actress. And that uh, was the case until Lena Horne arrived in 1942. But, you know, it's interesting... But sound movies were still something of a novelty when this film was made in 1929. How relevant is it that in the first talkie in 1927, Al Jolson sang My Mammy in Blackface? <laughs> Precisely. Precisely. Um, the uh, One thing, Lenny, the same year that Hallelujah is released in 1929, there was another black cast film, Hearts in Dixie which Fox did. And in that you have Clarence Muse and you have Stephen Fetchett. And Stephen Fetchett actually in Hearts and Dixie in a black cast movie, he, he's funny in that, quite different he from this. He wasn't playing in, the stereotype roles he played yeah, in but other you, but you, Yes, but, but there are, he's working with other black actors and there's a rhythm that's established. And, and he's not, he doesn't seem, he doesn't represent all black people because you have other hmm. not that the others aren't also stereotyped but they're not like step and fetch it but anyway hearts and dixie comes out in 1928 as well and and it has music and so for hallelujah and hearts and dixie they these first hollywood black cast films making use of the negro voice because one of the things that, that happened, there were stories, uh, I mean, they just floated around that the Negro voice recorded better than the white voice. And Robert Benchley wrote um, an article of, uh, about it, about the, the, the black voice in films. And he actually talked about Step and Fetch It, among others. And he felt that, that the sound medium was perfect for, um, for for the Negro. And um, you can also see other things. There, there were shorts. Uh, Bessie Smith in 1929 does mm -hmm. St. Louis Blues. The great Bessie Smith is her only film, making use of that, of that voice. And uh, Duke Ellington, with his music, um, does a black and tan in, 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 in 29. Um, and Ethel Waters appears in the Hollywood film in a musical sequence in 29 um, on with the show and she sings Am I Blue? So there were these stories about the black voice and its power and I think indeed it did have great power. It just ended up being utilized in a different way in Hollywood. You want yeah, to I'd jump like in to, here, um, Anna? Yeah, yes. Um, I was thinking, you know, so uh, some of the great things about the series is that we also get to see Nina Mae McKinney um, in these musical shorts that Donald was referring to, um, um, particularly shorts uh, that came out of the Vitaphone studios. And it was an early sound sync method um, that uh, where a film was played in synchronization with a disc. And that's how the sound uh, was provided for these um, short subjects. And uh, from the Warner uh, Warner Brothers Company, and they were shot right out in um, in New York and Queens. Um, so it was very uh, close by the city, using uh, talent from Broadway and um, from the clubs. And so um, 
Nina Mae McKinney uh, turns up in two Vitaphone shorts, I believe in the series, um, along with the Nicholas Brothers. Um, one is Pie Pie Blackbird with the um, with UB Blake's band. Um, and Which is also going the, to be shown today, is along with yes, Hallelujah. Yes, which is, you know, and if you, ha- it's, uh, it's such a delightful That has film UB Blake and, and the Nicholas Brothers. Nicholas Brothers, and then Nina May, uh, you see her uh, uh, kind of transforming from a sort of stereotypical role into her glamour mm. role. Um, that's really a lot of fun. And I hey, think, Wait, can uh, I interrupt for a second? Is that because yes. most of the roles available to African-American actors at the time were as domestics or comic Yes, that's what's going to happen. But what what Nina is pointing out when you see her, it's interesting in Pie Pie Blackbird, that when you first see her with the Nicholas Brothers, she is um, in a sort of maid-like outfit. Mm -hmm. And, um, And then later in the film, she's the glamorous Nina May. There is a, a transformation there. And then in Black Network, she's, I find her Nina just so sophisticated in that. Do you? Yeah, I think it's the, um, I think, you know, when we're talking about musical films and what might've happened, um, you know, really using her star power, I think that the Black Network in, in basically 20 minutes presents this um, all black, musical backstage um, story that's actually backstage at a radio station um, where Nina May is um, billed in the film by her name, Nina May McKinney. That's her name in the, uh, in the diegetic part of the story. Um, and the only other um, uh, performers who have that same billing are the Nicholas brothers. And Nina May is, um, featured in the film uh, as the star who's coming into a radio station. Um, she, her partner is Babe Wallace, who's also from um, black cinema, from uh, you know early black race films. And um, you see her do a couple of numbers and there's a, you know, a very tiny kind of rags to riches story. And she's presented completely as the, the, um, motivating star she's the uh the love interest as opposed to the comedy comedic star which is played by um i believe um amanda randolph another uh yes. kind of stalwart stalwart of uh of race pictures and, and amanda randolph later was on the amos and andy television show but, but it's interesting that in 1930 mckinney filed a libel suit against a white reporter, Elizabeth Goldbeck, who'd written that Nina had repudiated her race in an article that she wrote in the Motion Picture Classic magazine. How would she have repudiated her race in, in light of what you're, you're saying here? No, I don't, I, don't, I don't see that at, at but she all. But she still had to sue uh, yes. as a result. Uh, one thing else which Nina is saying about, I mean, it's interesting in terms of, billing of Nina May when she uh, is in race movies um, such as um, Gang Smashers and Devil's Daughter um, and uh, Straight to Heaven. I mean, she gets that, and and these were for black audiences, she gets that deluxe billing um, above the title. But she she also... um, 
it, it indicates there that she, there were people within the African-American community who would be excited about seeing her. And, and the name meant something. And some them. pretty heavyweight directors. She appeared in Safe in Hell in 1931. That was directed by William Wellman. Later in her career, Ilya Kazan cast her uh, in, in Pinky. Pinky. So, yeah. so directors recognized that there was something special about her. In, in Safe in Hell, um, she played a hotel proprietor who befriends a New Orleans party girl on the run. Uh, and that's going to be in the series as well? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And that, um, yes, Dorothy McHale, um, that um, Safe in Hell is a very interesting movie in terms of the the African-American actors who are in it. Nina May, uh, Clarence Muse is in it, um, who was one of the writers of the song Sleepy Time Down South, which is utilized in the film. And Noble Johnson is in that film. And Noble Johnson um, was one of the early Black actors to work in Hollywood cinema, um, playing all sorts of, 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 of characters, ethnic types. And he also was one of the founders of the Lincoln Motion Picture Company, which um, was incorporated um, by 1916 and that set out to make Black films for Black uh, audiences. And their, their philosophy was to to make movies of uplift and and noble johnson was perfect kind of uh leading man for for the movies he was handsome uh muscular striking and it it wasn't going to happen in hollywood cinema and so in in these other films the the race movies and and here i'm thinking now though about the lincoln motion picture company and the films that they did where where noble had a chance for another type of role um but Nina May had gotten a kind that the kind of attention when I mentioned Noble and, and his star qualities, she still had gotten that that attention that other black actors and actresses didn't get at that particular time. She got a lot. And and Daniel Haynes, who's very good in in in, in the film and sort of a ropes and s figure, um, he he got good notices, but but he wasn't considered the kind of uh, star that nine that Nina May was. So again, even with that, it becomes a struggle. She does William Wellman's film Safe in Hell, and what happens many years later, she does um, she does Pinky, and Pinky, mm-hmm. she has. I mean, she's there on screen. She has a role, and she's and she's billed. Some of her films in between, she she did small roles and she didn't she didn't get billing but pinky she she does and it's a different kind of part um for her well she um, she, she she's a she plays a very be, jealous girlfriend who tells yes, police officers that precisely. that Jean Crane uh who uh, plays the title character is nothing but a low down colored girl trying to steal my man yes <laughs> but precisely. of course Jean Crane is 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 not an African-American, but she's playing somebody who's passing. Uh, I have to take a little break, and we'll be back with more of this story. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
Christina McKinney in her first starring role in Hallelujah, where she sang and danced at the age of 16. Um, I'm talking with uh, two people who about uh, a series of her films that opened today at Film Forum. The series is called Nina Mae McKinney, Hollywood's First Black Movie Star. And my guests are Ina Archer uh, and uh, Donald Bogle. Uh, and uh, that was interesting. She, listening to her there, she sounds very much of her time. Uh, but uh, did she have a distinctive style? Um, yes, I th yes, I think very much so. I mean that, you know, and as a dancer, to sing and dance, and you see that in, in Halloween, particularly when she does uh, Swanee Shuffle, um, song written by Irving Berlin, and she, um, the movements in it. I mean, it is. Um, it this is this is dance that comes out of the black community. In Hallelujah, they also do a dance. The the trucking is called the trucking from that that period. But she's able to do the uh, the the dance, and she. I even see sort of that she's a kind of. Um, it's a kind of predecessor for for break dancing, which came much later. And with the movement of of the legs, straightening them at one point, and then um, that sort of bending them, use of the arms. I saw. Uh, the, uh, I mean, I think in a sense, when you see Elvis Presley, and I think it's in Jailhouse Rock, uh, Jailhouse Rock, that it, it really does seem to be coming out of that. That Nina May. Oh, that uh, thing where he put his leg forward and, and moved it back and forth. Yes, yeah, precisely. Now, by, so late, she, by late January 1930, Nina had grown tired of MGM, and she began failing to show up for promotional appearances, especially if her name wasn't in lights above the marquee. Uh, in 1934, Richard Watts of the New York Herald Tribune wrote that her exile from the cinema is the result entirely of narrow and intolerant racial matters. But wasn't she also a troubled person? She got married around, uh, around this time, and it was the first of what may have been many marriages, eight or nine, uh, and plus many affairs. Um, was her, the fact that her life was so turbulent Separate from the fact that her career was well, so, so you know, I don't know. I mean, with all the, I mean, these may have been relationships, not necessarily marriages, but but one was to uh, Jimmy Monroe, who later marries Billie Holiday, and Billie Holiday made a reference to uh, to Nina May. But Nina May, um, you know, as time went on, and I really think it was uh, the frustrations of of her career that. Um, you know, she 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 did have a drinking problem, and there were also stories of um, of drugs. So she she became a troubled woman. I don't think that in the early part of her career that she was you know she was that kind of troubled figure. I think she was very optimistic. She got all of this attention, um, and she assumed, much as Dandridge later, that it was going to work out for her. And then I, I, I mean the frustrations then grew when there was nothing being offered to her and then nothing of real uh, consequence or, or substance. And so she began to, um, she, you know, she was in a kind of emotional turmoil and she was also um, somewhat adrift 
because a career can really anchor someone when they have a career and they're watching it take off, watching it grow and develop and searching for new projects to do. Um, that does something for a person. And when someone has all the talent that she had and then just nothing is, is happening uh, for her, um, and it's happened with other stars um, that that they they they're adrift and and they go somewhere else. And I, I really think that this is what what happened to her. You know, she did go to England and she she had a, a degree of success. Some there. people she say that use- that was uh, that leaving the U.S. was probably the best move she ever made. Not just England. She worked in Paris, London, yes. Berlin, Cannes, Nice, Prague, Budapest, Monte Carlo. And she was the first African-American entertainer on British television as part of the BBC's experimental broadcast in the 1930s. Yes. And there is footage around of of that they filmed something and uh, and that is around. But she also does Sanders of the River with Paul Robeson, a 1935 film. And it's um, that was uh, done in Europe. Right. And she yes. And then it, it, goes, it, it goes to Africa and she is. Um, she doesn't so but she looks more Hollywood hmm. than um, than than an African sort of queen. But she's. You know, she still has that energy and that spark. Paul Robeson is the star. And um, even if you don't quite believe the story, and part of the story is um, can be infuriating because it's a salute to British colonialism. Uh, He's a film playing that, an African that, chief and she's playing his wife. Yes. But she yes. had thin plucked Hollywood eyebrows, has been pointed yes, out. Yes, precisely. I mean, you can see it in, in I mean, if you, even if you haven't seen the film, the stills of it. Um, and it's um, so, you know, it's not authentic uh, to to that, that part of African culture. And um, but she's, you know, she's still delightful. And um, and that can happen in a movie that the movie can uh, can disappoint us. But the star doesn't for whatever reasons. So she still had that. She still had that magnetism, uh, which uh, w- which you can see in that um, in that film. And I would say even Ina, don't you think she still has it in the race movies that she does? I think definitely. And um, that she um, that she has that magnetism. Um, but I don't think she necessarily gets to use all of her skills in those films. Precisely. Now you know that she's, you know, acting, but not, you know, but her, her distinctive vocal style, her kind of bluesy mixed with sort of more contemporary to that time kind of, um, uh, expression doesn't really get translated very well, um, into, uh, those later films. Although there are some exceptions, uh, wouldn't you say Gang Smashers, where uh, she played an undercover agent posing as a cabaret singer? Uh, mm-hmm. But although that was a race movie. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We were talking about these the three race movies mm-hmm. that she that she did, Devil's Daughter, mm-hmm. um, which is an interesting film. So that's set in uh, Jamaica. Yes. Yes. So she. Um, she didn't lose it. She really didn't. I mean, she, um, and no matter what her frustrations were, um, she still had that, that, that quality. And again, you see it in Pinky, even though she's playing a supporting role and it's, um, 
it's it's a character that the audience may not particularly gravitate towards, um, but but she still has the the power to to hold the screen. And it's interesting that you know, Lenny, you mentioned about Gene Crane in Pinky, uh, 1949 film, and it um, it was one of the um, the the problem pictures that came out in. Uh, 1949, that where Hollywood is looking at race as as its central theme. And Pinky tells a story of a light-skinned Black woman who's been living in the North and uh, where she was being educated as a nurse. And she returns to the South and to see her grandmother, played by Ethel Waters. And she has all of these um, humiliations um, heaped upon her in the, in the, in the South. That's Jane Crane's uh, character. Yes, that's Jean Crane's character, and Jean Crane being a white actress having a role that would have been terrific for an African American actress. So Nina May, in her scenes with with Jean Crane, or her scene with Jean Crane, um, she lets loose in that, mm-hmm. and it's almost like another movie within the movie. You know, like who are you to be playing <laughs> this part? Um, it's 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 funny to 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 see because her uh, annoyance and anger with the character that Jean Crane plays it it's terrific and it's really rooted, and it may also be saying something about the uh, the movie the movie itself the movie's casting. You know, when you see Pinky, if they had done that earlier, it would have you know. Uh, a decade earlier. So it would have been a great part for Nina Mae McKinney. And I also have to say this, that when we look at what Hollywood did not do with her in 1936, there was um, there was the, the movie version of Showboat. Mm-hmm. And Showboat has a, uh, a light-skinned Black woman who's passing for white. The part was played um, by Helen Morgan, who was well-known to audiences. But Nina Mae would well, have been white. perfect. Yes. Beg your pardon. Helen Morgan was white. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Playing the part of the of the black woman. I mean, as Jean Crane does later, they often or, or too often did this with the mulatto roles. They they gave them to 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 whites. But um, but Nina May would have been perfect for Showboat. But, you know, the other thing that that happened was there was the production code of ethics that was strictly enforced um, in 1934. And it. Stated clearly, there could not be miscegenation on screen, a mixing of the races. So this was also um, something that you know that would have uh, prohibited Nina May from doing uh, the role. But frankly, I don't think they seriously considered her. You know, along these lines, later with Showboat, there was a remake in the early fifties. Um, and again, Julie, the the black character who's passing, Lena Horne wanted to play that role. And when her studio MGM did it, they put Ava Gardner in the in in the part. So for actresses, black actresses, I mean, just repeatedly, the few opportunities that might have been there that might have, um, they didn't even get a, a get a chance um, get a chance for that. We're talking about the first African-American movie star, Nina Mae McKinney, subject of a series called Nina Mae McKinney, Hollywood's first black movie star that opens today at the at Film Forum, uh, a series that will be running for the next couple of weeks. Uh, and with us are Donald Bogle, 
who is a film historian, who will be introducing tonight's program, and Ina Archer, who is also a historian, visual artist, filmmaker, and contributed film comment, a programmer as well, who will be introducing one of the, uh, well, I guess, next Tuesday's program. This is WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. For a little while, as we mentioned, she was in England, uh, and she became a star there, uh, appeared on television, also topped the bill at British clubs. And uh, some reviews mentioned uh, numbers that she sang, It Don't Mean a Thing, Stormy Weather, Lazy Bones, Shuffle Off to Buffalo. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, while she was in England, she starred opposite Paul Robeson, in Sanders of the River in 1935. So um, why did she come back? Well, I think, you know, people come back, except for Josephine Baker, but people she, well, come she back. She returned in 1944 to appear with Merle Oberyn. Yeah, in, in yeah. River I mean, it's still, waters. yeah, it's still coming back home. And um and I'm sure she hoped for 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 something. But, you know, even in um, abroad where she did have um, a, a success, um, I'm sure there were frustrations there as 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 well. And so she does come back and she comes back. And it's, um, you know, as I've said about Dorothy Dandridge with the career, it, it wasn't so much a glass ceiling as a brick wall. Mm. But they're, they're just. It, there was no way um, to fight it. And, um, you know, the, the, the people who ran the studios, um, producers, directors, they just, you know, they, they did not see a place for her. Also, when she does come back, we want to remember that in Hollywood, uh, particularly with with women, there is, you know, there there is ageism. And um, when an actress reaches a, a, a certain age, um She's not considered um, viable. I mean, I think that still applies today with with movies, even though we do have uh, I, I say I use the word older women working. Um, but um, but as being the, those getting those great movie roles, they, they begin to to dry up. The great thing about today, though, is that we have television and streaming. And so there are things that 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 can happen for an actress. But anyway, Nina May comes back and then it's I just think that her. Um, she comes back, she's and again, in terms of, of movies and the entertainment world, she she's older. Uh, she's got other um other problems, issues, and um, I, I just think it, it just piled up on her. You know, I talked to some time ago, it was um, Billy D. Williams, who brought her up that when he was growing up um, in New York, in Harlem, and, and Nina Mae uh, McKinney was living there, and he remembered her as a boy, and he had just wonderful memories of her. So, People in the in the area, even though she was, you know, her her glory days had 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 gone, they 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 did um, 
they had not forgotten certain things about her, which is a wonderful thing. But she was, you know, she was struggling. And I also um, uh, interviewed some time again, he's no longer living, Lorenzo Tucker, who had worked for Oscar Michaud and was sometimes called the Black Valentino. And he told me that later he worked um, at a hospital in, in New York. And he said they brought a woman in and she was bloated and, and, and ill. And she, he thought she looked familiar. And he said he learned that it, it, it oh, was God. Nina May and oh. it made him very, very uh, sad. So there were those who, who remembered her and, and remembered what she, you know, what she had to give and, um, and, and were saddened by the, by the d- direction that her career took and, and I would say by the direction that her life took And as well. I know she, she took roles in some smaller films, uh, um, accepting stereotypical roles of maids and, and sex workers, uh, made a number of unsuccessful American comeback attempts, but left performing in the early 1950s. Although, as late as 1954, Hugh magazine reported that she was preparing a return to show business in a new act, which, of course, never happened. Hmm. It's, um, you know, I was thinking about uh, performers, uh, male and female, thinking of someone like uh, Cab Calloway, um, Josephine Baker, um, Dorothy Dandridge, maybe not, you know, uh, well, the two prior stars having had a recording career along with their, um, uh, you know, that they were able to kind of move into clubs, uh, records, uh, to have other kind of generating um, work uh, that could kind of keep them in some public's eye and allow them to kind of resurface. And I feel like um, Nina Mae McKinney didn't seem to have that same uh, infrastructure to come back to. Um, and maybe that's because the, the, her style was uh, of a particular kind that didn't develop in the same way. Well, maybe um, it was even the way, the thing that she could do. Uh, Fired Nicholas of the Nicholas Brothers said she could act, sing, dance, and wisecrack with the best of them, but she came along too early and there was no place for her. And and also the thing is when, when we look at the ones who, and, and there are few who, who did survive and so forth. Um, someone like Ethel Waters, who, you know, started her career as a slinky um, blues singer called Sweet Mama String Bean. And then her 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 music changed and she crossed over and she had the big hits like Am I Blue and Stormy Weather. And then she was able to go to 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 Broadway in the 30s um, in in white in black segments of white shows and then by the end of the the 30s she she daringly played a dramatic role on broadway mamba's daughters and made this uh this transition and um and ethel waters also i mean this is the other thing that uh, that that happens ethel waters um she does cabin in the sky on broadway the early 40s then she goes to hollywood and she does the movies and 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 in the movie lena horn is is in the film and um ethel waters um a true entertainer um she found herself competing with 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 lena and she was going to make sure lena did not win there was a terrible uh, explosion I have, in the making i have of to Captain leave it there 
I've run no. out of time. Okay. Do want to point out that she received a posthumous award from the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame for a lifetime achievement. And two years ago, the New York Times editorial staff featured an obituary of her in Overlooked, a series that they where they try to correct long-standing biases. Um, tonight, uh, Hallelujah, Pie Pie Blackbird will be screened at Film Forum, introduced by Donald Bogle with a post-screening talk by David Pierce of the Library of Congress and uh, Margaret Boddy. And then uh, coming Tuesday, Safe in Hell, the William Wellman store film and Black Network with the, with the Nicholas Brothers uh, will be screened, introduced uh, by Ina Archer, our other guest today. And then there's uh, two more screenings, one on Tuesday, November 23rd, and another one on Tuesday, November 30th. A uh, lot of interesting films coming up. And my great and, thanks and to Lenny, both of you. Also, can I just say that Bruce Goldstein of Film hmm. Forum put this series Impressive. together. And thank and you, Bruce. I, I think he did a great job. Unfortunately, I got to leave it there. Thanks, but, Lenny. Good, good to talk to you again. Yeah. Ina, good to talk to you. I hope to see you next week. Yes, yes, safe in hell. You've got to see Nina. She's amazingly beautiful, and you'll never forget it. Well, yeah. I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. Thank you again. And, and unfortunately, that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. That's 212-209-2950. Please do it right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content. Because, you know, WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't run ads. So if the other kind of listener who tunes in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large has just discovered our unique content, we need you to step up right now by going, as I said, online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's entirely listener-sponsored on the air. Do it with a tax-deductible contribution. And as I'm sure you can understand, WBAI needs your help now more than ever as a result of the difficulties of the last year. My great thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support BAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and former Republican candidate for Senate in Virginia, Daniel Gade, will discuss his new book, Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer. You won't want to miss it. We'll see you tomorrow.